Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable for all, edifying for most, and equipping for those who are pastors or teachers working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation at Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Amy Peeler. Amy is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. She's the author of a handful of books uh, on Hebrews, as well as a forthcoming book on uh, the mother of God. And she is a dear old friend of mine, and uh, this is her second time on the show, and so glad to have her back. Our text this week is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, which is the epistle lesson for Transfiguration Sunday. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show along to others that they may benefit as well. And of course, look in the show notes uh, for ways that you can support the show. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Amy. So we're looking at a small passage here, but we can put it in its larger context as the conversation unfolds. Yeah, we're just looking at a Second Corinthians verses four or chapter four, verse three through six for Transfiguration Sunday, aka last Sunday before Lent. So I assume the uh, for our listeners the uh, the Transfiguration uh, themes will be patently obvious by the end <laughs> of the text. So uh, would you like to read? the passage, and then I'll say a word of prayer. All right. No, I'm glad to. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Uh, let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this day, which you have made. Please grant us the re- grace to rejoice and be glad in it. We give you thanks for this hour in which we have been gathered by your Holy Spirit to study the word of God, to study uh, this written word of uh, Paul to the church in Corinth, which bears witness to the incarnate word of God, who is Jesus Christ, your image in our flesh. And we ask that you would grant us the grace to Be attentive to what the word of God has to say to us today, that we might be faithful bearers of the word by the power of your spirit. This we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for coming on the show again, Amy. I loved having you on for the first time a little bit ago, and 
Yeah. Excited to have you for this text. What's uh, What grabs your attention as you read this text afresh today? What's, uh, what's of particular interest? We can go anywhere. What observations might you have? You know, it, uh, it was good to read this again. And I remembered as I did so, I was like, I think I've written something on this. You know, it's so funny. <laughs> those could be distant memories. And I had written a commentary on this. So I looked at that again, too. But But hearing it for this morning kind of, and I did it kind of as my devotional this morning, just what Lord do you have for me in this text right now? I like that. That's what you prayed as well. I think there's three things that immediately leaped out to me. The first is Jesus Christ as the image of God. Uh, I've been Mm. reflecting on what that means for the inclusion of people in God's image. And so that's uh, a direction that I enjoy thinking about. And this text in particular, I think, does a nice job of bridging what is sometimes argued as two different features of that image, uh, namely that Jesus reflects the invisible God, and also that he provides the template for humanity. I think Mm. you get a really great combination of that here with light imagery, which is typical Mm. in the wisdom literature, saying, you know, you can't see God, but you can see God's radiance, glory, light. But then also, how do we see that light? It's in a face. (laughs) It's Mm. in a body. And so that joins the anthropological element of that. The other thing, word that kind of grabbed my attention. And and I think I had some memory of this because this is what I ended up writing about when I wrote a commentary, a small commentary for this was the language of slave doulos. Paul doesn't just say he's a slave of Jesus Christ here, which is pretty frequent in his letters, but he says, we are your slaves to the Corinthians. So he's putting himself in service to them. Uh, That language is hard. I was in a group actually over Christmas. We were reflecting on Mary's fiat and several people in this group said, I just am really troubled by slave language Mm. that she says, I am the doule, the handmaiden of the Lord. So it was a reminder to me that this language is maybe for people who are kind of used to hearing scripture, fine. But for those who have some hard questions, this is difficult to swallow. Uh, So I think that needs to be reflected on. And then maybe most pressing for right now, the image of light shining through darkness was really powerful. I'm, I find myself disconcerted that many different Christians have really radically different ideas of what constitutes truth, uh, what constitutes right action. Um, very tempted toward despair in that, honestly. And this was a good reminder that even in the midst of times in which it seems like no one can agree, God's light will pierce Mm. through that. I I paired this reading with Proverbs. I'm going through Proverbs this month as well. And just that if you search for wisdom, God will give it. So that was a comfort. Mm. I'm sure there's much, much more, but those are the three things that immediately popped for me. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, we might come back to some or all of those as we continue. I'll just mention, uh, two quick observations for me. One was this string of genitives, this of, of, of Uh twice. Uh, It just, it just Uh seemed maybe it was just the rhythm of it, but, but also playing them off each other to see if they, I know as a person who, who spends a lot of my exegetical energies in the gospel of John, Mm. often they're a statement is repeated, but slightly different in kind of Hebrew parallelism fashion. And 
I found, and sometimes repeated chapters later even, but it's, it's a, it's a technique in John interpretation to play those off, to help, to see if they mutually illumine each other, right. Right. To kind of figure out what the heck is this reference to, you know, this, you know, the, some random reference to water, but then you see the exact same sentence, except instead of water, it says spirit like, Oh, okay. So like little clues. right? Right. So I was playing with this here. So they both are the light. Mm-hmm. Or the illumination, the the lighting. It's not mm-hmm. phos, it's photismon. So we can talk about that word later if we want. But mm-hmm. so in four and six, the light of the gospel mm-hmm. in four and of the knowledge yeah. in six, of the glory of in both, but of the glory of the Messiah in four, of the glory mm-hmm. of God in six, who is the image of God, verse four, in the face of and face and image have some connection. I think there just playing those off each other was, I I didn't draw any conclusions yet. Maybe you and I will as, as the conversation unfolds, but uh, that, that was what was exciting to me was the rhythm of those terms, the, Uh the poetry of it. I could see a translation being sometimes translators are uncomfortable with these string, a string of ofs, Mm. right. Um, And might want to, iron them out, you know, uh-huh. to make them work a little smoother in English. But I think, I think the of actually the string of of is doing something here. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure yet what, but it's doing something. Yeah. I said two things, but the second was, I just put a big old circle around icon to Theo image of God. That also was like, Ooh, I want to talk about that. Yes. Cause you know, we make so much of that in Genesis one, although it it isn't a dominant theme in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, it's kind of this random thing, but then it gets used in the new Testament almost exclusively, except for one instance that I can think of almost exclusively as a statement about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And what does that tell us? So those were the things that grabbed me today, just in terms of initial observations, but so where do you want to go as we start to exegete this text. What do you want to, do you want to pick one of these things or did something stir in you as I was sharing my observations? Where, where do you want to head? I don't have an agenda. I just, <laughs> it, it seems like we both have excitement and interest in image of God. So maybe that is where we yeah. should dive Hang in. Hang out there a little. Yeah. 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 No, I, I have, I have shared this. I have come to this conviction as well as you're pointing toward the chief referent for image of God really should be first and foremost, Jesus Christ. I have come to that conclusion, I think, in my work and in my reflection on that. It's so rich. But but I do feel like in the Old Testament discussions, in the discussions of Genesis, Israel scriptures, there, of course, is an unending amount of questions of what might this mean in humanity. And I think those are excellent questions because that is the formation, that's the story of the beginning of humanity. But I do wonder if the New Testament is focusing or maybe kind of shepherding our minds, our contemplation to say, okay, if Jesus is the image, then how can he, in his embodiment as God, help us then make that second decision about what that means that humans bear the image of God? I I think that provides some boundaries. or It just feels like you could say, oh, the image of God is everything. And of course, in the tradition, different things are floated, relationality, uh, uh, reason, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder focusing on Christ maybe doesn't provide kind of a list of answers 
but it does protect us from some misdirections, I wonder. Yeah, it's kind of a framework. I think of, I know in like teaching intro theology, you'll talk about different uh, possible, because the content of the image of God is not explicit in mm-hmm. Genesis 1, right? right? right. Um, there might be clues there, um, but uh, it's not said, you know, let us make you know, the human in our image comma, because the image means, you know, there's not that, like there's the proposition of the meaning of the term, uh, though uh, obviously implications are, 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 are possible from that text. And, and I think that text would, does, you could maybe say, uh, set some boundaries or like, if it does, if it completely contradicts Genesis one, it's not going to be a good, uh, definition Mm -hmm. of the image of God. But I wonder if like, if, 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 if Genesis one, I'm just, I'm pitching this as I've never thought of it this way until just now, but like if Genesis one kind of gives you the kind of boundaries or the frame, right. Mm-hmm. Um, the risen Christ is the, the center, right. Yeah. So it's like yeah. you get a boundary from right. Genesis uh-huh. one and Christ as the center, which actually might be a plausible model, even for thinking about the relationship between old and new Testament in mm-hmm. general, right. Mm-hmm. Is right. Uh, or law and gospel, right? That there's, that the framework is established. It's not like there's this, the new Testament is not a whole new framework, but it is, it does present a, a, a very distinct center point that then arranges every, all the other details in light of that, right? The, like a point of light in the middle yeah. that shines through the hole mm-hmm. and shapes the way we think of it. So I'm with you. Like whenever I teach, you know, intro, like, usually my textbooks will kind of list, you know, whatever textbook I list, you know, will often list like the Christological model is like one model next to other ones. And I'm always like, well, you can have the other ones with the Christological one. right? (laughs) But uh, like you said, it's a a framework or a guidepost or a center point, uh, a light that casts. And then the way the image of God then is lived out can include lots of other possibilities, you know, something inside of us, something outside of us, some, a task that we have or what, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities. I never noticed what you said before about the sort of divinity of this language at first glance, but the reference of face Uh as this highly, this gesture to the, to the humanity of Jesus. I I never saw it that way before. Could you comment more on that? I I'm not disagreeing with it. I'm fascinated by it. Like, yeah. So maybe is there something behind the language of face that suggests something human in some way? I'm just curious what 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 made, what made you kind of make that connection? I, I I can see it. It makes sense to me now that you say it. But I guess um, I would go back to Icon Tothiu, which can be like a manifestation of an aspect of God. So most often seen in Logos and Sophia reflections, like Mm. God emanates organization or care or structure. Does that term appear a lot in intertestamental wisdom literature, the icon, the image of God? Right. So it is, I don't know. Because it's not very dominant in the Hebrew Bible, correct? It's mostly a negative term, right? It's a term like idols, right? Don't have images, right? Yeah. (laughs) So it can be 
in line with what is also very common in Greco-Roman reflection uh, about Lagos, that how do we know these great divinities? Well, they have emanated aspects of their being in the structure of the world. And the Hebrew Bible, especially in Proverbs, but then also very much in Wisdom of Solomon, takes up or shares this kind of similar reflection. So I guess I'm thinking the divinity side there. And then- I see it, Okay. Prosopon, and then, but I come to Theo in, of course, the the scriptures of Israel with the Genesis narrative is kind of there in Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven. So it is a dual focus. It can be like this is how we experience God, and this is how God has said in humanity, "You bear my image." So there's always those two things going on. That the author, and I love how you drew out the parallels of the genitives here. He really does, if if Paul is kind of studying for our, less, for our less grammar geek uh, listeners, the genitives is the of. Of, like, exactly. Sorry. Right. No, you, you don't have to apologize. I'll just catch okay. it whenever you okay. and I start to go into to grammar land. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> go ahead. You're good. You're good. But then image is set into parallel with the face of Jesus Christ. And yeah. So I, I, Prosopon would actually be a wonderful thing. I would want to go back and study that again, because that is definitely someone's face, but it's also the way you present yourself. And so I, I do think there's some translated in the Old Testament, often presence, like in the presence right. of God, right? In the in the Psalms, it's you know, seldom translated with face, although yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that face is also presence or presentation, which have the same mm-hmm. root. Which this is all being done in their hearts. Like he wants them to be enlightened. Um, verse six, the light in our hearts. So mm. it's not like Jesus's body is suddenly in their hearts. And so there is a sense of its presence, but how do you, I guess I would conclude it this way. How would Christians say we know and experience God? It is because God has revealed himself in the person who had a face and a body, yeah. Jesus Christ. So that's the image that that he brings. He is, I mean, this is just classic Christology, right? He bridges both. This is how we see God and how we see true humanity. Yeah. Uh, he becomes the template. And my understanding is though I would love to hear you reflect more on this with your background in knowledge of theology. My understanding is it's pretty widespread in the tradition that as they contemplated what it meant for God to form the first human, the Ha'adam, it really is the incarnate Christ is the template for that perfection. I can give you some citations here, but I hope I'm not making this stuff up. But like when God says, okay, I'm going to form the first human who bears my image, God has in mind the incarnate Christ as the perfect humanity, the perfect image of God that provides that template. And then here, let me throw something out at you to see if I'm totally crazy. But so my attention has been on the gender dynamics of the image of God, which it's right there in the Hebrew. You know, this is not like political correctness. It's right there. God, and male made and female, he created them. Him, the male and yeah. female, he made them. And, and here's where I might be getting a little crazy, but I wonder if the body of Jesus Christ incarnate as male, but from the flesh of the female alone is mm. a beautiful and perfect <laughs> unity of male and female that 
has never been replicated in anyone else. And so that's the template for humanity. Right, because don't you get your uh, Y chromosome from the from the father? <laughs> yes. And so, yeah, so those are yeah. excellent questions, which like I especially appreciate <laughs> the work of Oliver Crisp, who's taken the, those up. So God would have to provide what the male normally provides. I, I don't, you know, there is a miracle there that is beyond understanding. Right. But the tradition is absolutely in agreement. And I think the evangelists point this direction that if he had flesh and blood, which the confession says that he does, that he's not just yeah. kind of wandering around in a ghost-like thing, that flesh and blood came only from her. Now, with the overshadowing yeah. of the Holy Spirit, but the only human That's who right. had anything to do with That's it right. was Mary, a female. And yet, I, I would attest that Jesus is male. The mystery of how that is true, or he presented as male. Yeah, but he's not, he's not half God, half no. half man. Yeah, he's no. he's neither is he. Um, neither would I want to say he's like half male, half female. That's not no. the direction I would want to go. He's male, but embodied only with the flesh of a female. There you go. There's yeah, yeah. There's something unitive in that that I think reflects images, recalls this attestation that male and female bear the image of God, because in the image of God, Jesus Christ. There is bodily participation of male and female, though I'm yeah. still reaching for how to say that well. Well, the early church definitely did a kind of second Adam, second Eve with, exactly. with, with Christ and, and, and his mother. Right. So there's no doubt. And all this links back to prosopon face, presence, person. Mm-hmm. I don't know about in the first century, but at least in later centuries, prosopon, which is the word face here, it is the standard term for person. It's the right. word person in the Chalcedonian definition. Right, right. That Christ is two natures, one person. Mm-hmm. Word there, there's two different terms that gets used. One of them is prosopon, mm-hmm. person or face. So I think you could even translate this, you know, the illumination of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of the messiah or the personality that's a little silly but to to, in terms of doing a dynamic equivalence of what would make sense to us Mm. what dominates is his personhood so it is embodied so he's not a ghost like you said and and we're made the human is made as human as male and female and as male or female. And so there is a maleness about his bodily flesh but Mm -hmm. his primary identity is his personhood, his prosopon. Wow. I I was grinning the whole time you were talking. That's bad radio. So people don't know what I'm thinking, right? When I'm just, I'm just like grinning. I'm like, Ooh, this is exciting. This is fun. Let's take a quick break and come back and explore this some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler, and we're looking at uh, second Corinthians chapter four, Verses three through six, the the epistle lesson for Transfiguration Sunday, and yeah, before the break, we were talking about this image of God question, and and I I love this notion that it sounds like you've come to, I think you and I have kind of come to this conclusion uh, somewhat independently, but in overlapping ways that Christ Himself is the the center or substance or framework of the image of God. But then when we got on this face stuff that. The gender questions were very interesting. I think the, I, I think one of the puzzles you mentioned, one of the puzzles in terms of 
classic or ancient Christology is there's a pretty, because of this kind of first Adam, second Adam, but also kind of first Adam, final Adam, last Adam, not just second. And then there's going to be third and fourth and fifth. Right. But because he's last, he's also in some sense, the prototype. So he's, so you've got the first Adam and then you've got the archetype who though he becomes incarnate after is in some sense before, just like John the Baptist says of Jesus, you know, even though he's after me, he's actually before me Yeah. or he ranks above me because he was before me. Right. Uh, Even though he comes after me, right. You, You could see that as a framework then even for Adam and Christ. And then there's this puzzle. And I feel like the tradition, the Christian tradition is of two minds on this matter. And I don't think there's like a dogmatic or orthodox answer. I think it's pretty mainstream to say in some sense, Christ is the image on the basis of which the human is made in God's image. Right. So, so in some sense, we're an image of an image already, yes. or yeah. we're a copy of a copy, even in the garden. This is why I like to say, don't call the garden perfect, call it good, mm-hmm. right? Or innocent, right? But perfect implies completion right. and finality, which is not the case. Even without the fall, there's still development and maturity right. possible. And so the perfection, the completeness, lacking nothing would be the, the first and final image, the true image of God, which is the second person of the Trinity. So then the puzzle is whether to take it in the sense that you mentioned, which I'm slightly more inclined to, um, which is that it's the incarnate Christ, Jesus, even though he comes later in time, is the model for Adam. That I think there's a, there's definitely quotes in the early fathers, especially before Nicaea, who would mm-hmm. talk that way. Yeah. After the Arian controversy, mm. it was very important to kind of accent the preexistence of the divine son, the second person, right. the Trinity, independent and up independent of his becoming incarnate. Right. Right. Cause as, as incarnate, he is subordinate and, and obedient and all that. But as the eternal second person, of Trinity, he's equal and identical yes. to the father, except right. So that creates this little puzzle is because once you introduce that idea, which I think is also true, yes. it kind of muddies the waters of the way that you put it. Right. Which again is it's there in the early pre-Nicene fathers. And it's, it's popular again in the modern period Mm -hmm. because it's more historical. It's more kind of this worldly to talk about the incarnate Jesus as the model, even though it's weird. You have to do weird things with time. So it's weird either way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the mainstream tradition after Nicaea up to the early modern period would emphasize the, the model, the image of the, the, the image that's the basis of for Adam is the pre-incarnate eternal son. Mm -hmm. Is this making some sense? And so like, so like in Thomas Aquinas, I'll give an example. He, in his, in his treatment of the doctrine of Trinity early in his uh, Summa Theologia mentions, speaks of the father. And then when he comes, he speaks of two names for the son and three names for the spirit and the, the two names for the son, no, three names, three names for each. The three names for the second person are son word or logos, right? And image. So he privileges that as one of the main, and that's, he's talking about the eternal son mm-hmm. prior to an independent of his becoming right. incarnate. So he's not, he doesn't become the image of God when he becomes incarnate. He right. is eternally the image of God because he is a mirror of God's own. And yeah. you see face now, you see how face right. and image really go together well yeah. in this framework. 
yeah. God is, he's God's own knowledge of God's self in eternity. Mm-hmm. Side note, the traditional, this view is actually more clearly, what's the right term for beyond gender, pre-gendered? Of course, of course. Right? right. Actually, right. the gender problem is actually only introduced if you go with the... So I like that you're, you're actually making your job harder Mm. (laughs) by, by going with the, it's the incarnate Christ is the image. Well, now the image of God is male. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So then you have to talk about the virgin birth and all of that. None of which is on Paul's radar, but I'm loving that we're talking about this because it's fun to do. So I don't know that. Sorry for the, uh, you, I don't have to apologize to you, but to our listeners, in case that was a boring five minute history lesson <laughs> on. So image of God, yes, Christ, but Christ in the sense of the pre-existent, pre-incarnate Christ right? or Christ as the incarnate at Christ as kind of foreknown by God from all yes. eternity or something like that. And there's ways of linking these two ideas. I would put the right. two, I would say you can have a both and on this, but you That's, have to work yeah. it out. I can okay. tell you my thoughts on that later, but I, I've been talking long enough. <laughs> no, I mean, that's what I was thinking. I don't see why those two would be mutually exclusive. It does totally make sense historically why the emphasis post the Aryan controversy would be on the pre-existing yeah. But in my reading, that is so consistently claimed about the incarnate Christ that he is God come to us that Mm -hmm. those don't feel like two different things, but I see that it introduces different questions or problems. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, I mean, you won't be surprised that I'm going here. This is so Hebrews language. Yes. One, three, the apalgasma, the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of God's character. And this is the God beyond time, the God of creation. And so it's, it's the sun, even pre-creation who is reflecting uh, the being of God. So, but yeah. And one of those questions, Oh, go ahead. Hebrews also does that weird time thing, which I think is why I'm comfortable with it. That that's so often, you know, we have this revelation of say, Jesus is the Melchizedekian priesthood, but he goes back and follows Melchizedek. But really who is Melchizedek? tempered off of the son of God. And so, and it's the same with the temple, right? We have a temple, but it's really reflection of the heavenly temple. So I think my um, being so familiar with this book puts me into that kind of flexibility with time that, that I'm very comfortable seeing in other places in the new Testament. Yeah. And I wonder if, if uh, of course I love that you're just talking my language. Uh, Mandy's going to laugh when she hears this episode, Mandy and Amy were like BFFs back in yeah. seminary. So like, <laughs> that's why you bring her up. But, but also, cause we've definitely talked about grammar and we've talked about time, two things yeah. she knows that you and I love and, and <laughs> it ro- makes her roll her eyes. But anyway, yeah, the, I mean, this passage, just this little passage four to six mm-hmm. manages in talking about the present. Now, you mm-hmm. know, verse four is just introducing this, well, yeah, if some people don't know our gospel, verse three, right? And yeah. four, that's because they're blind to it. So it's this kind of present tense problem mm-hmm. that stretches all the way back to creation, right? Right. In verse six A, right? God said, out of darkness, yeah. let light shine. And the yeah. reference to the, the image of God. Yeah. And then stretches in this very forward direction as it talks about the face of Jesus mm-hmm. that, of course, Paul has seen. Yeah. Uh, or heard, kind of saw, didn't see, did, you know, the, the, the imagery here of light and face, I can't help but make me think of his, I'm not saying this is a narrative of 
that this is a version of his Damascus Road event. But some of the imagery matches, right? A blinding light, and there's a kind of knowing without knowing, a seeing without seeing that takes place there. Although he's not describing this as unique to his experience. He's saying this is just what it means to be those who are being saved rather than those who are perishing. Yeah. And that we, you know, have this light shining off of the the face of Jesus, um, which I can't help but think that that's a kind of light, not just shining from the past forward, but shining from the future back uh, to us. Because when I think, at least when I read Paul, it's, it's the risen Christ is always the sort of the dominant factor, right? He's the, the, the Lord who yeah. is reigning and is on his way towards us from the future, as it were. I'm, I'm putting that too too quickly, but you get the gist, yeah. right? I, I think you're right. And it makes me immediately think of 1 Corinthians 13, where the future is, then we will see face to face, prosopon, tongue, prosopon. So, yes, uh, face to face. Future oriented. So I do, I do think Paul holds the idea that while the light of Christ can shine in their hearts. There is still a sense in which they are looking forward to a full seeing that it's not possible yet. And this is the same community to which he wrote first Corinthians 13. So there's definitely some resonance there with face and future seeing. Yeah. So time is really has to bend here. It makes me think of the movie. uh, Did you see arrival? Yes. Oh my goodness. I love that movie yes. so much. Yeah. Because yeah. it deals with what? Language and time together. Exactly. exactly. But you that that the notion in that movie of kind of if you were to write a sentence with two hands from the beginning and the end into the middle. Yeah. Right. You and he she says that and the person responds says, Well, you'd have to know the end to to do that. Yeah. She's like, exactly. So what happens if you start to have a different kind of relationship with language? You start to have a different relationship to time. Yeah. And you can almost see the whole story from creation mm-hmm. to redemption at the end with Christ in the middle Absolutely. as a kind of a narrative of the sentence towards the middle or mm-hmm. starting from the middle and working out to the yeah. end that time really has to bend for mm-hmm. these words to not just be quote mere poetry, you know, not, okay. nothing against right. poetry, but yeah. you know, it's just mere poetry. If there, if some, uh-huh. if some assertions are actually being made here, then we can't think of time in a strictly kind of linear way, but right think of start to begin to see time the way God does in this kind of folding way. Yeah. That's, that's part of, I think the light that's, that's happening here. It's like Paul is, and there's veil language here, right? Paul is kind of Mm. lifting the veil to say, we as humans perceive time in this way, but if we start to catch just a glimmer of God's vision for time, that offers such great assurance and comfort and the ability to keep going and be faithful because you yeah. know that encompasses it all. I think that's such a perennial need for humans to process time correctly, right? So, <laughs> or to know how yeah, to and even if we don't process it, at least to kind of have a, a loosening of our mm-hmm. attachment. Cause mm-hmm. it's like a lot of times people will say things yeah. like, Oh, I don't want to think about that. And it's like, well, actually you, you do have assumptions about it. So yeah. at the very least, can we disrupt those assumptions of your life in time is simply just one thing after another? Well, yeah. actually we're being enfolded in this massive story right. that casts light on the way we live right now. And to just think that life is just, you know, one dang thing after another. Right is to be blinded like verses three and four. That's mm-hmm. those who are perishing. Yeah. Right. Those are, that's just life. You just 
eat, drink, and be merry, and then we die, right? That is to perish, but to see things through the light of the one who created and the one who will consummate, Right. Um, to see all of that big story in the simple face of Jesus yeah. is a whole different way to to live, not just to think, but a different way to live. Yeah. You know, would you just uh, before we wrap up second section here, just kind of landing the plane on the practical as you already started doing? What do you? What's the presenting issue as you understand it in the Corinthian context? What is what is he getting at when he talks about you know? those who are perishing mm-hmm. and the people that are blind. I mean, either just in the larger literary context here or, or anything you might, any hunches you might have about his audience, what's the kind of presenting problem that he kind of brings all this theological meat toward? Yeah. I think there probably are two things going on. One more general that just as you alluded to a concept that this life is all there is. I think that hopelessness was rather pervasive Mm. in their wider society as it remains today, right? You try to eke out all the meaning you can now because this is it. Uh, And that never fulfills. That's never enough. Uh, So I think that's the general sense of those who are perishing, whose eyes haven't been open to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. But then, of course, he always, in this letter in particular, has his opponents in mind. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing to reflect on. To what degree are the super apostles that he'll talk about right. in later chapters, those who seem uh, very self, uh, they really like power, they like comfort, they knock on Paul because he is weak. And mm-hmm. so what What in this kind of... Because um, when he says our gospel, he's hinting there's a polemic there, right? One. Exactly. As opposed to some other gospel running around. Exactly. Yeah. So what, what is that okay. gospel of success? I think he would say that they too are perishing. Hmm. So both the kind of like secular, wider pagan culture, but also his opponents that have that have tried to wield influence in Corinth. Um, how are they blind? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Mm-hmm. And then he's implicitly saying, and you, dear believers, if you go with these super apostles, you're following blind guides, right? I think I mean, that would be the, the blind, the, the God of this world blinding the minds of unbelievers is obviously talking about pagans, right? But it's meant, it's probably meant to have this double, this double, this implicit dig at, Hey, you're you, Hey, you super apostles. You're, you're no better than, than the pagan, uh, the pagan gods, right? Right. You're actually blinding people, even though you're claiming to illumine them. Yes. Yes. I I see. Okay. So there's an irony in what he's talking about. Right. I do think he would say the super apostles have been blinded, captured by Mm. the um, criteria for success of the unfaithful. And while they're talking about Jesus, they're living in such a way and they're recommending a way of following him that is at odds with the message that Jesus himself preached. Um, Wow. So that makes this stand out all the more then is to see all this talk of light and knowledge and mm-hmm. glory mm-hmm. that at first glance, it's, this is a theology of glory, right? But it all lands on the face of Jesus uh-huh. who right. Right. though risen was risen as the crucified one. Right. right? And right. so it's all, there is a hiddenness here, which is the yeah. opening 
line. Yeah, if our gospel is hidden or veiled, it's hidden and veiled to those who are perishing. What has been unveiled is that this man of sorrows, this suffering uh, servant is in fact the very image of God. Right, right. Which is why Paul probably can talk so comfortably about being a slave. Exactly, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. Because that's what it means to live sort of in the in the wake of Jesus' way of being in the world. Exactly. Yeah. And it's that's it's, very it's, helpful helping to think about the polemics. That helps me see the the the, the ironic uh significance mm-hmm. of of this passage. Mm-hmm. And that he refers to Christ, Messiah, twice here. I'm looking at the variance here in verse six, because in the face of Jesus Christ, but Jesus mm-hmm. is actually Not in all the manuscripts. Yeah, exactly. But what is sure without a doubt is that it's the face of the Messiah. So again, I mean, this is, this seems rather classic upending of what the Messiah (laughs) was supposed to be. Uh, The Messiah is supposed to be glorious, but how was he revealed in, in humility? So. Wow. Yeah. That's good stuff. Let's take a quick break and uh, come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler, and we're looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, which is the epistle lesson uh, designated in uh, the lectionary for year B for Transfiguration Sunday. Now, not all Christian traditions celebrate Transfiguration Sunday. Those who do don't always celebrate it here. There's also a summer one. There's one in like August and I know Roman Catholics and some others do it in the first Sunday of Lent. Some do it the Sunday before Lent. So we don't have to obsess about the transfiguration connection, but as a fellow, you know, church year geek like yourself, I can't help but say, Hey, if you were going to preach a sermon on, on transfiguration, how would you maybe bring this text in, you know, like either as the main text or as a side text with the famous story? I mean, the, uh, I kind of want to, I want to ask you that preaching question in a second, but a way to get there would be like, Paul probably didn't know the transfiguration story, did he? But it, this would be one text where you might be like, maybe he does. Cause it's like, <laughs> so, so much of the imagery just right. perfectly matches. Yeah. Obviously Luke, if he really was a companion of Paul knew this story eventually, although he probably yeah. didn't write that until long after Paul maybe even was dead. So I don't know. I just, do you have any thought? I, I don't want to get too speculative, but is there, is the, is the connection merely just a, a convenient coincidence that I think mm-hmm. we, we could call it a canonical coincidence that this connects well with transfiguration or was this a kind of story that might've even been known to Paul? I don't know if you mm-hmm. have thoughts on that. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it might be a jumping off point for a sermon. Yeah. I, I will offer a few thoughts on that. Um, I don't like how sometimes in the history of my discipline, New Testament, all of the authors are very siloed. I ah, do think okay. kind of treating them in their unique voice is really helpful. So you don't just have this constant mush of mixing them together. So I do think it's really vital to say, what is Paul's contribution? What is Mark's contribution? The danger of that is then there becomes just these walls that then you can never make a comment about okay. anything that Mark or said or Matthew that has any bearing on Paul. And that just doesn't seem 
historically plausible in life. Yeah, totally not. Christians are intermingling. Especially because Paul was dependent on the apostles for his stories about Jesus. And it seems like transfiguration might make it on the short list. Exactly. (laughs) It's kind of a big deal. So, I mean, um, I was just, you know, Richard Bauckham's eyewitnesses of the gospel is a helpful kind of invitation for us to break down that barrier between authors Mm. So I'm very comfortable with Paul being aware of many aspects of Jesus's life. And I think we don't hear a lot of repetition of then what becomes gospel text is because like, that's the kind of stuff that people were sharing orally. And then Paul is writing really discipleship text. He's kind of writing right. what do you do with that information, but he assumes the information. So yeah. Like if you went to the youth group where I volunteer off and on over the last decade, if you were to hear the sermons, mm. you would you would get a lot of stories about Jesus. Mm-hmm. But if you were to just go to our like discipleship groups that we have mm-hmm. in the second hour mm-hmm. and just like recorded the conversations, mm-hmm. you would think these people have never heard of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They, that, right. that the life of Jesus is irrelevant to them. Uh-huh. Right. I love but it's because we just heard a sermon, answer. right. Yeah. Telling a story. They're almost yeah. always stories about Jesus life. That's almost right. the most common element of public preaching, uh-huh. at least in my, but that's pretty common. Yeah. So you can totally imagine Paul telling stories that he learned from the eyewitnesses right. with some insight that comes from his own rabbinic training and from his own revelation yes. on that road and kind of a unique synthesis of all that. And his own missionary experience and all that. But then these these letters are always follow-ups to a whole other kind of preaching. And we right. know Corinthians, he was there for a year and a half. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he kind of probably would have run out of stuff to talk about if he didn't know some Jesus stories. So I, I mean, <laughs> exactly. it's a fun, I, I asked that. I know that doesn't really sound like a preaching starter for our listeners. You're like, hey, when are you going to get around to that? But I wanted to know, like, would would you feel comfortable giving the green light to our listeners to say, mm-hmm. hey, you'd be within your rights to say, yeah. Uh, this is Paul's commentary on the famous transfiguration story, mm. or perhaps it is right that that wouldn't be a, yeah. a crazy idea. No, no, um, I don't think so at all. I think it's actually more historically plausible to imagine that he had heard this account uh, either from Peter, James, or John, or somebody that heard it from them, than to imagine he had no knowledge of that account whatsoever. Okay, uh, that's and a so then he might not be consciously thinking of the transfiguration here, but the language from verse six. Right. is so sort of blatantly, I mean, it even uses the word face in one of the yeah. versions. His yeah. face was transfigured. Exactly. And the reference to glory, it just seems so there. You know? Exactly. And to think and- then the image of God, where is the image of God portrayed? It's on Mount Tabor. It's up there yeah. Yeah. is where Peter, James, and John see who they really are. Right. Looking at him. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That, but what are they talking about? They're talking about his death. That's right. what Paul, that, according to Luke, it specifies yes. that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking about his, his exodus. Yes, yes. Yeah. What is to come, which is, you know. Right was, after that, he sets his face on Jerusalem, prosopon. Yeah. That just popped in my mind. Yes. That's like right after in nine, yeah. chapter 951. It's like right. a few verses after the transfiguration. Yeah. That's his face on Jerusalem. Yeah. And uh, I mean, think that this was a temptation for the disciples and maybe for the super apostles as well, that you just kind of camp on Mount Tabor. Oh, that's Jesus in this. Oh, that's so good. Right. I mean, that's the, that's, and, and I think 
all of them are directing, no, no, that's, that's not actually the climax of the gospels at all. It's him on a cross and then resurrected with his scars. The great that, line in the Emmaus, when he says right, he went through right. the scriptures to show them that it is necessary that the Messiah mm-hmm. first suffer and yeah. then be mm-hmm. glorified. It's the word glory. Right. And you hear that on the lips of Jesus, a phrase that only appears in Luke, that is the whole structure of Luke and Acts. It's the theme. You can yeah. make that a, an inscription on the front, but in a way you could take that and put it as an inscription on the front of Paul's letters. I mean, Luke right. learned that value yes. at Paul's feet, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that, that, and I've, I, I mean, that uh, it's a stand, it's a, it's a great trick on a transfiguration to do the certain, to, and to focus on that moment of like, Hey, can we build some temp? tense exactly. here, uh-huh. but I never thought of that connecting to the super apostles, mm-hmm. the, the opponents yeah. that in some ways yeah. there's a kind of temptation there. Uh, there's a parallel in their temptation, right. a kind of prosperity gospel, right. a, a glory, a false glory, a, exactly. a glory now mm-hmm. instead of a glory after the suffering. Right. But I think the transfiguration Ooh. is so vital to go back to the, our conversation about Arian. Jesus is showing his disciples this is who I am. This is who I've always been. I am the radiance of God. And yes, I will go down the mountain to be crucified, but I'm not, I'm not just a human that's doing this to be nice. I'm God doing this on your behalf. So the, um, you know, the, the parabola of Philippians two, they get kind of a glimpse of what it means for him to share in the nature of God, to be in the form of God. And then, and then that helps them put in the right framework, the cross that happens later, I think. Oh, that's good. Right. Because right at the beginning in the baptism, this is another kind of time thing, right? So the transfigurations in the middle of the story of Jesus, you are my son, Mm. or this is my son. Listen to him. It's directed to the disciple. Whereas back in the baptism, you know, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the centurion, at least in Matthew and Mark says, truly, this is the son of God. So you get that son of God, son of God, son of God, Mm kind of beginning, middle and end. Yeah. That's kind of then on a, that's, that's stretched out onto a cosmic scale in this passage, right? He's the image of God from the beginning of creation to the end when he returns. And the mistake is to think that, you know, you can have kind of the human glory now, whereas the glory that is known now is hidden to those who value who follow the world's value system or something like that. I know this isn't exactly a sermon outline for our listeners, but hopefully there's some grist for the mill here to kind of play with the transfiguration themes. I think it would be really fun to, especially for any listener who's preached on transfiguration before, maybe even annually, a great way to kind of stir it up and make it fresh again is to kind of riff off a, a, an epistle and kind of see it through that lens a little bit to kind of notice new themes. Right. I mean, this may be one of the first applications of the transfiguration story. How is Paul very likely drawing from his knowledge of this account to meet the needs of this congregation? And that's what mm. pastors are doing, right? I'm trying to that's listen right. to the spirit. What does, what does the spirit direct me to give to my congregation about the transfiguration? Well, you can look at an older brother here who's already done this. Okay, if this I is love it. about Christ, then how is that going to help my people? That almost makes me want to say, like, how do you preach this text? Oh, don't preach preach Luke nine or or 
you know, Mark uh, eight or is it nine, nine, Mark nine, uh, just preach this transfiguration story. Read this for you. This is for your personal devotions during transfiguration week to kind of inspire you of like, okay, well, what, what is the challenge that we're facing and how can I, how can I let the light of the face of Jesus shine into the darkness of our time? Right. You know, so, and then the application becomes highly contextual to whatever, what is the particular darkness? You already mentioned one, just the seemingly intransigent conflict amongst Christian right now about the implications for the gospel politically and practically mm-hmm. and kind of just begging that yeah. God would shine light into this darkness. We're, right. we're confused, you know? Yeah. And I think I, I was reflecting on I, always the turn of the year, especially in a place that gets very little sun. Um, people always say, oh, you kind of have to buckle in for the months of January and February. It's dark and it's cold. And 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 truly, people who struggle with mental health issues, this is a hard time. And I wonder if that, and then in the now we're facing a second year of a pandemic and, and really only God knows when we'll be free of this. So there's a lot of potential for kind of anxiety and apprehension yeah, about the coming year. A lot of heaviness. Yeah, Lent, yeah Chris, Easter and Lent starts early this year. And so mm-hmm. this this episode, we're, you and I are recording, I mean, you know this, but our listeners don't. We're recording this like first week of January. Mm-hmm. This is going to drop, I think maybe February 8th, something yeah. like that. And Transfiguration is pretty early this year. It's like 15th, mm-hmm. 14th. So Ash Wednesday, I think it's the 17th, 18th mm-hmm. of February. So we're going to be in the dead of winter. Mm-hmm. when when this when this episode drops and it's still pretty dark and gray for those of us who live in more northern right climates i know that's not every listener but um the thought of you know well i mean it's so simple and silly but i'm going to just say it the sun is always shining the same brightness mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. it's the clouds mm-hmm. yeah and it's the the rotation of the earth and the spin, you know, and the, the cycles of the earth that make it seem again, it's the time that we're in. Yeah. Right. That makes the sun more direct or not hotter or not a, so that's the times we're in. So we're in the time when the sun is more distant. We're in the time between the times. Yeah. So we go back to time, but we're also under a cloud. Yeah. You know, and yeah, in the story of Jesus, there's only a few little moments and often to a small circle when the cloud is separated. And interestingly, it's revealed by a cloud, right? It's a cloud that comes and covers him. So I feel like there's a poetic connection to transfiguration that can be made there. There's these very few times when the the truth of who Jesus really is peeks through. Mm -hmm. And Paul takes that as a framework for the Christian life that, yeah, yeah, we do actually live under this cloud. And now this phrase in our hearts in verse six really matters because he's almost saying, yeah, the sun isn't out there, but it's in your heart. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just, I mean, I know where I would start with a story. I I, I have a light box. Uh You've heard about these? Cause I have seasonal effective disorder big time. Yeah. So I, I have this, it's like 10,000 lumens. Anybody's listening and you just get those winter down in the dumps, yeah. 70 bucks, Amazon. It's the best way. It's the way to apply this to your life. Buy one of these things, Yeah. set it. It's on a timer, 15, 20 minutes a day, huh. every morning while you do your devos. I just do it year round. It's part of my routine. Cool. And it has made, 
I can still get depressed, but I bounce back quicker. You know, I catch it like a day in. I'm like, Hey, wait, I can go take a walk or like I, I catch it and used to just go in deep for weeks. And, and I mentioned that cause it's kind of like, I mean, that's silly, but it's a little, it's a tiny parable of, okay. Yeah. The light isn't coming. It's behind the clouds. It's still there. Right. But I need to have some light in my heart. So exactly. what am I going to do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there's my light box. Yeah. Um, Which helping actually, me have some light in the time of dark and, yeah. and to Which, ask what are some practical ways that we can. Yeah. I think that connects that beautifully up. with we are embodied beings. And so yeah. I think there could also be a temptation to preach this passage. And I really would have to thoughtfully consider this, but like, well, just, you know, just pay attention to Jesus in your heart, right? Like he's there, <laughs> which is good and true. And he does need to be our orienting vision, but we are also embodied people. And so we might mm-hmm. need the light box too. Like that's it. We can't. Absolutely. Yeah. And so if, if he had a face, we too have faces that need. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I was introducing that as kind of an illustration. And yeah. what I like that you're saying is, it's okay to also say this might just be a way of living it, right? The right. body matters, yeah. right? Yes, yes. And of course, that's a, just the lesson about preaching in general is mm-hmm. the kinds of illustrations we select always send signals about what's important, Interesting. right? right. If all your stories are about sports, you could, if someone said to you, are sports important to living the Christian life? You would say, no, of course not. Those are just, those are just the examples I give. Right. Well, right. It, there's, there's, it's there, there's the explicit curriculum and there's the implicit yeah. curriculum. Right. Yeah. And so by telling a, a mental health story, yeah, even if it's just as an illustration mm-hmm. to make a, or not even an illustration, it's just an analogy. Yeah. Even that signals that that's okay, that that's exactly. valuable to, to do yeah. what you need to do. Although you could just make it straight up and explicit, right? Face, yeah. heart. This is very physical language yeah. Yeah. and it would, the transfiguration, it doesn't say, and Peter, James, and John saw in their hearts who Jesus really was. No, his actual face was transfigured before them, right? right. They had a physical vision. Yeah. Of something and his real. clothes changed. Like, yes, <laughs> I know. Oh, so cool. Well, alas, uh, we I got to let you go. So let's wrap this up. Thanks so much, Amy, for giving an hour of your time oh, to our listeners. You. So fun geeking out with you. It's like the old days. Exactly. And yet more and different and more... Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's more mature, but it's at least different. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> hope it's better. Yeah. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their great production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks most of all to our listeners. Uh, thanks for listening and getting the word out about the show and for supporting the show in various ways. And uh, with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.